Hello, welcome to JobsCast. This is Pat Bubble, your host. I have a friend who a couple years ago was in the throes of an implacable sense that everything was soon done for, that goodness and freedom and justice were simply getting destroyed out there and had no shot at a fourth quarter comeback. And he told me he didn't know which of two options to follow, caretaking and consoling others as the world went down, or criticizing and attacking, doing what he could to try to topple the powers that seemed to have locked civilization into a fast-moving track toward demise. This was a couple years ago, and we haven't spoken since. I'm not actually sure which road he chose, but I do think his sense of the menu feels even more germane to this moment where a lot of us in the U.S. have been having a return-to-form summer, but are now staring at the threat of a COVID reemergence in the form of the Delta variant. It's looking like a sequel to a movie everyone has lived out all too recently. I think using one's head, one can always think of more reasons to despair than hope. Logic, data, history... Looking through any of these powerful lenses, it makes little sense to have a sanguine view of our prospects. But I don't think I'm a Pollyanna or a Pangloss when I say that using one's heart, or even spirit or intuition, if you like, one can always detect that the role of belief is crucial. Crucial for what? Crucial for living, for being, for making the effort to move through your days, trying to spread some good while minimizing damage. Belief is not mutually exclusive with logic, data, and history, but it's for sure challenged by those forces. Every day we ingest compelling reasons not to believe in the law and democracy and each other, and living more in our heads than anywhere else, these sources of epistemology produce in us the sense that my friend had, that really you can either fight the bad guys or comfort the good guys, but either way, we're in deep trouble. I can't prove that my friend is wrong, And I can't give you enough reasons why you should believe in yourself, in your community, in tomorrow, to outnumber the list of very real injustices in the world that I'm not downplaying or neglecting. All I can say is, I believe you should believe. Try on belief. Try to inhabit that heartfulness, that intuitive sense that life matters, that spiritual connection with the beauty of the universe, even now in what for so many feels like a dire moment. I think if you do that, You've done the one thing that increases your capacity to do everything else. I know that this is a very unhip position to take. It probably seems very easy to dismiss. People don't like enthusiasm, but you know the etymology of enthusiasm, that thuz comes from theos, from God. Enthusiasm is to be inspired or possessed by God. I don't think of myself as a religious person, but I'm working on being a believer and I think enthusiasm helps. Marianne is a believer, a feeler, an empath. She's also an eloquent thinker and critic and does the impressive work of holding up all of those identities and qualities without settling on some singular notion of her reality. Our talk centers mostly on Marianne's day job of the past three years as a grocery clerk. Marianne is one of 2,633,642 Americans who have that job. We explore what Marianna's observed and felt and learned from that role, and in my biased view, there's a lot of great content. I hope you get something out of it. I think listening to Marianne can boost belief. As always, contact me at pat.bubul at gmail.com with any thoughts, feedback, or questions. You can also follow me on Twitter at JobsCastPodcast, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Marianne, welcome to JobsCast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So Marianne, 
Walk us through a day on the job. You've been a grocery clerk in New Jersey for around three years now. What does a normal day feel like internally and externally? What are you observing and what are you doing? And also, how does it tend to feel? Externally, you begin your shift and depending on the store needs, determines what you will be doing at that moment, whether you're helping customers or being on the register, or if it turns out that uh, there's a section where product needs to be put on the shelves um, or whatever, you'll be doing that. And I think people might be surprised. There comes a certain point, I work the later shift, so we get an evening truck and we then break down uh, all of the product that's come in on that truck and begin stocking the store for the next day. I think people would be surprised how physical the job is mm. and how all of that movement because as a body, you are physically in motion much of the time. How all of that then by the next day, sort of the minor aches and pains or the stiffness. And even uh, the younger people on staff will speak of these things. So while I am older, I know that I am not alone in terms of the, oh, I, my back feels stiff or <laughs> things like that. Internally, I think this might also be a surprise for a lot of people. And, and certainly um, you hear it from newbies uh, when they start to work at, uh, at something like or at my grocery store or at any grocery store. The demands working in retail is challenging for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that you're constantly interacting with people. And that is a wonderful thing in many ways. And you have nice exchanges and wonderful stories. But it's also difficult in that you don't know what's happened in somebody's day or somebody's life before they walked in. And sometimes people are angry or they're afraid or they have anxiety. Certainly the past year during the pandemic showed this, uh, that you can be, as a grocery clerk, the object of that release of anxiety or fear or anger or frustration. And that's hard, you know, because we're, we are constantly having to keep it in check and certainly be professional and as kind and helpful as possible and, you know, to maintain a good sense of humor as much as possible. But we are still people at work. And I think that it calls on you consistently to be able to see what's unfolding in front of you and yet keep that professional positive demeanor for others. 
And it's not to say, I mean, obviously many people in many different industries and walks of life deal with this, but there is something about working at an hourly job where we are lower wage income earners and there is something about the value or lack of value that we attribute to that kind of work. I write columns, op-eds for the Boston Globe, and there was a piece where I was writing uh, about having an exchange with a gentleman, and I knew that if I were a surgeon wearing a mask and imparting information to him, that he would certainly have not spoken to me in the tone of voice in which he did. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's another level of having to know for yourself that you are doing work that is of value, that is essential, whether there's a pandemic or not. Feeding people is important, and we are certainly a part of the structure of feeding people. I don't know that the average person goes into the store thinking that the person who's helping them is feeding them. Mm, Yeah, it does seem that there is a halo effect of prestige where we have these hierarchies that are either explicit or kind of implicitly absorbed in the culture where we know that doctors and, and lawyers and engineers command a a general sort of respect but it's interesting i I believe intelligence and curiosity and goodness come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and in a way that that's sort of the raison d'etre of this whole podcast is to highlight those qualities that exist in i guess what are unexpected places And, and really they shouldn't be unexpected because if we think about it i think people are engaged and interested and and thoughtful and again, those things manifest in so many different ways. So I've always found it kind of curious that we might even care more about a surgeon's uh, take on some political occurrence more than a grocery clerk. But there's no reason for that, really. I mean, a grocery right. clerk can have just as much experience and knowledge, perhaps even more, to comment meaningfully on what's happening politically But again, those are the benefits that I think accrue at the top of the work pile. I think there are a lot of flawed assumptions there. Take us through more examples, Marianne, of moments that were affirming and pleasant and and made you feel like you were a vital member of the community and others that come to mind on the opposite end of the spectrum where you feel the daily humiliations to use the studs turkle line that we talked Mm -hmm. about in our preliminary call. There are lovely moments that come to mind in exchanges with customers, for example. I remember a couple coming in. It was uh, near store closing, and they were making a larger purchase, but there were a lot of duplicate products. And myself and the person who was bagging for me at the register uh, started talking to the couple, and we learned that in two days time on a weekday, they were getting married. And because of the pandemic, they scaled down, you know, there would only be close, I believe, family and friends, and they were going to have it at the house. And 
they were doing all the cooking themselves. And it may have even been, I can't quite recall, but it may have been a time of year where the weather would help them and they could be outside. It definitely wasn't warm weather, but it could have been like a fall day that wouldn't have impeded being outside and enjoying the celebration. And so we were having terrific exchanges with them and talking about the food they were making and all of this. And at the end, I asked them to just wait a minute before they paid. And I went to one of the managers who was on and I said, you know, that couple's getting married and I'd like to see, uh, let me go look at whatever flowers we have left for the day. And I'd like to, to give them a nice bouquet. And he said, absolutely. And so fortunately we had really been sold out of a lot of flowers that day, but there was this one bouquet that was really beautiful and in great shape. And so I got that and gifted it to them and they were so thrilled, you know, I mean, it was a simple gesture. It's not like, you know, it was some, you know, huge fancy made by an artisanal florist (laughs) kind of thing, but it was a beautiful bouquet. Anyway, a few weeks later, they came back in and they looked for me and they were shopping and they took out the phone and were showing me pictures from their wedding, Mm -hmm. including this really nice black and white shot of them. And I had said to them, you know, whoever's taking your pictures, have them print some that also are in black and white because it's really a nice quality to this kind of special moment and they showed me the black and white stuff and then also you know they told me they were having a baby I mean it's really just lovely and they thanked me and they let me know that the flowers became a centerpiece on their table Uh, so that was really terrific I also wear a protection cord around my left wrist it's sort of reddish well now it's faded because it's been in many, many showers, but it's wrapped around several times and then knotted. And that was given to me by a couple that practices Buddhism, including the husband who was a former Buddhist monk. And the protection cord was blessed by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so that I mean, it's very emotional that they did that and wrapped it around my wrist and were trying to keep me safe. Uh, It's like a beautiful thing, you know. So that was really lovely. And there was a guy one night I was walking from one part of the store to another. And he happened to be looking up while he was, you know, getting some produce. And he said, thank you. And I said, well, thank you for what? And he said, you're here and you feed us. And that was very powerful to me. Mm. You know, like that was just really something that it was in this very prosaic moment of somebody just buying, you know, some fresh vegetables that they stopped me. And to say it just that simply was just elegant, you know, and very powerful and really reminded me that there are many people and many energies in the store where people recognize that this is something valuable, important, something for which they need gratitude, and maybe even in some minds, something that they realize they 
would not be able to do themselves. It's wonderful how the prosaic can turn on a dime and become the profound with these moments that punctured mundanity like a comet. Yes. And it's amazing. It's miraculous, even. I think we go into our work lives with low to middling expectations for what is possible day to day. And I think that's mostly true, probably for going to the grocery store too, where a lot of us want to get in and get out. And during the pandemic, that took on new dimensions as well in terms of safety. And in my case, being a relatively young, healthy person, I would intentionally go to the store uh, at 10.30 at night when few people would be in there to minimize my contact with others. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these moments you describe, yeah, they're very special. Yes, they're very wonderful. And certainly... We have people who are chatting on their phone through an entire exchange, and it's like we are invisible as we're processing an order, or if we're stocking a shelf or something. There are people who you realize they're standing behind you, they're talking to the back of your head, but they're not saying, excuse me, or hi, could you help me? You know, there's not any Mm. kind of intro there. And they just start yelling out the name of the item they're looking for, like Mm. peanut butter, peanut (laughs) butter, peanut butter. As if they're talking to Alexa or Google. Right, exactly. You know, and Alexa is not responding in the moment, you know, so they just keep saying it louder. And in those moments, I am a writer. I am a creative person. I was a reporter early in my career, so I pay attention to what people are doing or saying or what's happening. I pay attention to the details. And in those moments, though, you are feeling invisible or insignificant that somebody is kind of trying to have you help them but they're not even recognizing that they're talking to a person. If they were in their office at a desk and focused on their computer and someone just walked in and said, report, (laughs) report, report, it would be like, you know, you're thinking they either can't see me because my invisible shield is up right now or they think I am not that bright. If they just keep saying it, I'm going to get with what they want. So there's all of that stuff, too. I think it's important for grocery workers, for retailers, for anybody really who's working face to face with the public. I'm sure this happens to tradespeople when they are doing work at someone's home to remember that however they are being has nothing to do with you or your work or who you are as a person. This is whatever they're bringing to the table, whatever their bad moment is or rough day or frustration at something, and they need somebody to be the recipient of that. And again, it go, it reverts back to what we were talking about earlier, depending on your profession, and really probably your salary or your Mm. pay level will probably in many ways alter how they address you. It's one of the reasons why I love Studs 
Terkel's book, Working, because he talks to people from all walks of life, white collar and working class. And it is extraordinary to me to see what people carry inside of them as they do their work and their feelings about it. You know, there's so much more going on. There's so much texture and depth to each of us. But I think when we're in a prescribed role, depending on that role, there's more reverence or less reverence. Mm. This strikes me as a incredibly important two-step process to apply not only to an occupational space like being a grocery clerk, but life in general, and that is to personalize interactions whenever possible. That is to say, don't talk to others as if they are uh, Alexa, but make eye contact, say hello, how are you? These small gestures matter, and sometimes they produce these ecstatic moments of, of you being able to give flowers or being able to receive the safety cord. But at the same time, step two is not to take things personally. So to personalize and treat other people like human beings, but at the same time recognize that it's very easy for people to become trapped in their own anxieties and worries and, and miseries. And as you say, they need an outlet or a release. And while I don't think it's always fair for you know you or a, another grocery clerk or a gas station attendant or a barista to be the object of those human difficulties it's going to happen whether you know whether or not it's yes. fair I think it's going to happen it's very hard to follow both of those steps because exposed to enough moments like that that are harsh and and debasing it would make sense for one to become more guarded and shielded and not want to do the first step, which is personalized to the extent that is possible. It's very interesting that you seem to have really kind of lived and, and learned that through the experiences you're describing. I think I have. Not always perfect at it, but pretty good. After all these years of working in the world at various jobs, I think in the end, right, it all comes down to people and trying to remember your own humanity and that of the other person, and where you can muster all of those skills and experience and just keep putting good intention or better intention or calm intention. Mm. If where you can direct that is in the end going to be better in whatever situation or circumstance that is. Not always easy, but I think it's a good thing. And every day, uh, whether you're at work or at home or out in the world running errands or whatever you're doing, there's always the opportunity to practice. Always the opportunity. Yeah, I totally agree. You mentioned a moment ago, Marianne, that you're a writer, you're a creative person. I think sometimes one can have work that slots comfortably into one's sense of self. So there's more alignment, perhaps, between saying, I'm Marianne, I'm a, I'm a writer, versus I'm Marianne, I'm a grocery clerk. And conversely, there are times when we have work that we want to sort of loosen the connection between identity and work. As someone who has had a number of jobs how have you sort of navigated this question about kind of associating with who you are and, and the kind of substance of self uh, with the work that you've been doing? 
That's interesting. I would say that if someone were to meet me today and they say, what do you do? My response is often, I'm a writer and my day job is a grocery clerk. And it's taken a long time to even put the grocery clerk in there because when I took it, I had been unemployed for a while because I chose to leave teaching. And I was in my mid 50s and I naively just assumed that from all of the editorial work I had done in my life, whether it was reporting or corporate communications at an international law firm or writing and editing bits early on at a woman's magazine, you know, like it never dawned on me that the world would think I lost those skills. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you know, I had still been doing some a uh, little bit of freelance and having pieces published in very respectable news outlets. So when I was finally just really like I've got to get money in the house, it's just me. It was only my income and it felt desperate, you know, and I was applying online to different places. I couldn't get a door slammed in my face. And so finally I thought, oh, well, how about grocery stores? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know where else to go. It felt embarrassing. Like, oh my God, where did my story go wrong? And this is not at all with any disrespect towards retailers or grocery clerks, because it is truly one of the hardest jobs you could ever have. And I feel like everyone, everyone in their entire lives at some point should have to work in retail Mm -hmm. and then go do some other job that is paying them more and where they feel like they're more visible. And then I think they should have to go back to some kind of retail environment and be in and (laughs) out of it. Because I think in a very real way, It keeps you honest, you know, you can't forget if you did retail when you were a kid in college and maybe a little bit after while you were looking for work, but then you never do it again. It's very easy to lose track of what that felt like. I think it took me a long time to to come up with and feel authentically without embarrassment. I am a writer and I am a grocery clerk because it is worthy work and it is being done by people of worth Mm. it's interesting too how at a surface level when we try to take stock of the world of a nation one thinks of the unemployment rate and this is why i'm so interested in qualitative research so to speak to the extent that i can call this podcast qualitative research gathering stories gathering information about people's lives because it's very hard to quantify or or calculate or or produce data around that transition from being a teacher or an editor at a law firm to being a grocery clerk. You're still employed. The employment Mm -hmm. statistics haven't changed. Now, maybe they've changed from being, I'm not sure if you earned a salary at all in those previous positions to being an hourly worker. But I I would imagine that uh, as far as the statistics are concerned, you're still employed, so everything's fine. But the the sense of identity and, and meaning and how you're valued, these things are very much dependent in a lot of ways 
on the work you do. But I do want to highlight, of course, the last note you mentioned about worthiness, that this is really crucial. I think we had new language emerging around this fact during the pandemic, where essential workers was suddenly the kind of in vogue terminology. I don't, I don't know about you, Marianne, but my senses were already, again, this is another hard thing to kind of wrap one's head around. I thought that in the same way that I think the, the kind of great pause that COVID brought in a lot of ways, I think enabled, for example, a, a lot of white America to do some racial reckoning that personally I, I find important and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was hoping that there would maybe be similar kind of reflection on work hierarchies and income disparities. And I'm not sure that the status of essential care worker is translating into any long-term meaningful change. What do you think? Yeah, I think particularly as things grow more and more quote unquote normal or day to day, or we're back feeling like, oh yeah, this is much more of what my life is like. I don't think anybody's talking about us or thinking about us as being essential anymore. In the beginning, when people would go out to do their grocery shopping and there were so many protocols in place, and their fear and anxiety was high, as it was for the workers, because in the beginning, there was so much we didn't know. Remember the crazy days, people wiping, you know, their can of beans, wiping sure. their UPS delivery, or Amazon, yep. <laughs> right? Because of that scare and concern and thinking, oh my God, this invisible thing, this invisible thing, where is it coming from, right? They valued us. I mean, there were times where we, you know, we were certainly called frontline workers also. And that was, Mm -hmm. you could get a sense in the beginning when people were so worried and scared that walking into a grocery store or any essential retail business that was open would feel like you were going into a combat field because you just had no idea where the enemy was. I don't think for many months now that doesn't seem to be happening. Certainly, you know, when there was talk of moving the hourly wage to $15 an hour, listen, $15 an hour at 40 hours a week is still not enough money to live and support yourself, much less a family in this country. So to act like somehow moving the money to $15 an hour means that somebody automatically started making six figures is ridiculous. And I know that there are some business owners that believe that raising that means that they're gonna lose money and there's going to be a negative downside, but there are also many, many studies and economics experts who will dispute that. You know, it could be a tit-for-tat conversation back and forth. At this moment in time, no one's really worried about having our backs. It's kind of like, well, my life is normal again, and I've got the vaccine, and I'm going grocery shopping, and I feel safe and protected. And everything is right in the world. We have a short memory. 
whether there's a pandemic or not, lower wage income people, this issue, this, this income disparity needs to be addressed. In Denmark, I mentioned this in a column, but also Paul Krugman of the Times did some wonderful work on this. If you work at, I believe it was McDonald's, that was the reference point, their employees there begin at what is roughly $20 an hour, what would be for us $20 an hour. Their hours or their work days are not cut back depending on the flow of business, which many retailers in the U.S., do you know if if the sales aren't coming in the theory is we need less people and so things like people's consistency of work hours shifts which automatically means their money changes they get two weeks paid vacation in addition to other benefits so if you are someone who is trying to figure out what you'd like to do with your life And maybe for whatever reason, working at McDonald's or another retail, you know, feels like, hey, this is a good thing for me to do. And they get, needless to say, medical benefits. There's a premium on doing that work. Mm. They are not looked at like somehow they don't know how to do anything else. And therefore, you know, it's a mentality. It's a thinking this country operates on capitalism and I'm not knocking capitalism, but what I am struggling with is that we can't look at people based on a dollar sign. We just have to stop with this because it is not helpful to us in any way as a culture. And there are people doing jobs that they are good at and that they like, and that are in service to others. And that should be regarded, well regarded. And there are other people who would never want to do those jobs because they either hate those kinds of jobs or don't know how to do those jobs or don't want to know how to do those jobs. So I think my point is we all have something that we bring to the table. And the fact that we all have something that we bring to the table and can contribute needs to be respected. Your comments also make me think about the notion of American exceptionalism, which I think was encapsulated in a new way via Trump's slogan, make America great again. You look around the world and in France, it's very common for people to not work in August. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Denmark, as you just pointed out, McDonald's workers start at $20 an hour. In Japan, there's a high-speed rail that goes from one major city to another. And in all of these ways, America is is exceptional by being behind. And (laughs) that's been true for a long time. And as someone who works in international education. I'm just generally interested in in learning about the different ways people on the ground and at the higher level of government organize life and culture and society. Whenever I meet a new student from Seoul or Beijing or Taipei, I had been living in Boston for 15 years. And when they would come and see that compared to the cities that they were from, our, our infrastructure, even in a prosperous pretty nice city like Boston was fairly dilapidated and Mm -hmm. and behind. The point here is that there's a lot to learn from around the world. There's a lot to learn from the people in front of us locally, too. 
And of course, America foundationally is a place that was built on immigrants, as people well know. And Mm -hmm. there always was a kind of founding openness. And of course, the great offsetting characteristic then is slavery, which is a an intense form of literal enclosure. So there's always been this kind of schizophrenic nature to the American project. But I would like to think that the good parts of America involve a kind of openness, curiosity, experimentalism. I think when we, as a nation, revert to a kind of regressive, fear-based attitude when it comes to any of what we're talking about, it's really dreary. It's depressing. Not to take this conversation into the purely political realm, but my mind was was sort of holding some of those thoughts while I was listening to you. I don't know if you want to respond to any of that. I think it's heartbreaking to me, politically, the division that's going on in the country. Because if you take it back to work Like I'm thinking about a lot lately about job creation, like, okay, what jobs are going to be created because there are so many people who have lost their form of employment because of the pandemic. So many businesses that have closed or are not recovering because of the pandemic. And yet people need to live to take care of themselves. They have to have a reason to wake up in the morning to feel like they need to show up and take care of something, to contribute. I think most people want to do that and feel that way. And so I wonder what kinds of jobs are we gonna create specifically? I want people to climb into the weeds on this. People who understand about job creation and the bigger picture and What do we need and what can we do and how do we do this? Because, for example, and again, you know, I don't know any coal miners. I haven't lived in a coal mining town. But from the outside, say there wasn't mining anymore, right? Like just say, for example, all of those folks who used to be able to mine and can't for one reason or another, they still want to contribute They still need to provide for themselves and their families. They still are entitled to a good life. And so my feeling is if they are being taught how to use their understanding of energy and systems to do it in some other energy field or being trained And uh, I don't even love the word trained, but in other words, really learning, having the opportunity to expand and bring in good money again. They, at the end of the day, if you peel it back for most people, they're just trying to keep a roof over their own heads and their family's heads and put their kids through school and put food on the table. This is very common for many of us, many, many, many of us. And so... I think that this time for a long time now is going to require truly thinking outside the box and then figuring out how do we get this in the communities? How do we do this where people are really hurting? How do we help create jobs where we can teach people how to do this other stuff? Because in all of those people, There's intelligence, there's decision making, there's creative problem solving. And that should not be lost because a particular business has suffered. 
Those people are still talented and can contribute. Now is the time we need to get in the weeds about this stuff. Like we can't keep kicking the can down the road. And it seems like there would be so many different ways and so many different industries or so many other things that could filter through if, you know, I don't know, does the president call for some of the brightest minds in the country to come together? Do you know what I mean? Like have these leaders. There are possibilities, yeah. Right, these people with experience, these people who understand structure and need and how the working parts can work together to problem solve. Because I feel like if we could start to see the commonality between us, that can actually be a place to begin mending some of our differences. You know, when you work alongside someone, you learn a lot about them, even if you're not having a conversation. Mm. You absorb their work ethic. In a grocery store, is somebody just throwing stuff on the shelf? Is somebody doing it in a neat, attractive way? Because there is a psychology about how people shop and purchase. Mm -hmm. Is somebody rotating perishable products to get the old stuff or the stuff that looks like, ah, I wouldn't buy that. So why Mm -hmm. would I want someone else to buy that? There's a lot of richness in this country. And like you, I like to believe that that spirit of America is bigger even than the individualism of America, which in some ways to me feels like right now is driving a divisive cord through things. Mm. I think it's more about what was the spirit of the law? What was the intent behind the forming of this project? What was making people want better for their family and their friends and their colleagues. I think you italicize a link that should be focused on more, which is the relationship of work and value, not monetary value, but a sense of being valued, the priceless kind, not the monetized kind. As you say, we know that work and feeling a a sense that one is contributing are very much intimately intertwined. And the fact of the matter is many industries have disappeared and are continuing to disappear and more will disappear. I do think that that is part of the reason why it seems that more people are hyper-identified with their national political orientation because... Even if you feel that you're not valued or respected in your community, uh, a factory closes unceremoniously, the mines are shuttered, at least you have your national political candidate who is pounding on the pulpit saying that uh, you're on their team and the problem is, you know, the other political party. And of course, it's all a great big red herring. We need jobs. We need meaning. We need stability. We need to be able to feed ourselves and put roofs over our head, as you say. So I think it's very important to consider that link. I want to go back, Marianne, to mm-hmm. what you were saying about absorbing people's work ethic. I really like that phrase. I'm not sure who who originated this or how well researched it is, but maybe you've heard that the idea that we are the kind of product of the five people we spend the most time around. We're so social. We're so 
permeable and we're often kind of in a way regressing toward our social mean all the time and so who we spend our time around really colors us and shapes us in, in, in all sorts of ways I'm thinking about that in the context of your work as a grocery clerk so the people you're around your colleagues over the years and then of course the members of the community who come into the store when you're working. How would you say that being around all of these people, and I would imagine there's a fairly high turnover rate at grocery stores in general. I don't know about yours in particular, you can tell us, but how do you feel about sort of being in the community? Do you have a sense that you've sort of gotten to know your community more by right of this work? I know that it's a fast-paced, busy place, so you're not sitting on Skype like we are now for an hour and <laughs> taking, a, taking a kind of deeper dive. What can you tell us about learning about the community and the extent to which that happens in your role? Well, if I look at the community of my colleagues, you know, I've been uh, working at this for uh, just three years. And I know from working alongside many people at, you know, in different shifts and things like that in different circumstances and delivery trucks come in late. What's the tension or what's the excitement that's going on because of something good? You learn, you learn who does the right thing, even if nobody's looking. The people who will do extra or stay extra or forget the word extra who just don't throw things up sloppily. So a friend of mine years ago said to me, and this is very true of my personality, I am not someone who buys a white t-shirt casually. (laughs) I don't know how to do anything, whether I am an editor or a grocery clerk. I don't know how to do anything without putting my all into it because now I'm spending at least eight hours a day somewhere. And I need that time to feel valuable to me because if I don't feel that way, what am I contributing? I'm looking at the clock and I'm just wanting time to pass. And I don't think that that's a healthy way to go through anybody's day. So certainly there are people I enjoy working with more than others because I know we have a shared sense of humor because I know if I say, can you help me with this? I can't get this, that they will immediately come over to help with something. There are also people with whom probably politically I disagree and maybe even disagree strongly. And yet I know that if I ask them for help, they will be there and help me. And that's what I think part of what I was trying to say before, like they don't look at me and just go, oh, no, I don't agree with you about X, Y or Z. Therefore, you know, get, figure it out yourself. I think that that's a place if we could all come to would be really good. I know my community, there is some turnover for sure, but there are also many people who have consistently been working within my store. And I think within other stores and other grocery stores where I shop, you know, you see the same faces after a while, you know, wherever you shop, you may be able to know uh, certain people or recognize certain people if you consistently go there. So there's always hoping that you're working with folks that you more readily 
no, because there's an easiness. There's a shorthand. You know this overall structure. And one of you says, I'll go load this table. And the other one's like, right, okay. And in the meantime, I'm going to do whatever it is. I do feel a part of my work community. I, I think people know who I am. I think the kids, the younger adults, would say to you that um, they listen to me. I think that without even trying, there is a certain authority about me where they just go, yeah, just do what she's telling you to do. <laughs> just do it. So, which kind of makes me laugh. But I think, I think they also know from how I comport myself that they see a professionalism, but they also know that I don't take BS from people. And it's not to mm-hmm. say that I argue or am difficult, but there is a way to communicate something to somebody that, you know, is like, what are we doing? You know, like, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. What do you, what are you, why are you saying that? I'm sorry. <laughs> and then the community that we help to feed, it's definitely in an affluent area. We are surrounded by some less affluent urban areas. So I have a real mix of socioeconomic people in front of me. And I like that a lot because within all of these many faces and shapes and cultures, you see humanity and there is no stereotype that everyone can surprise in a good way or in a less than positive way. Everybody can delight, everybody can joke, everybody can be a little shy. Mm. So it's like you're just seeing humanity and you're not assessing, huh, I wonder where so-and-so lives. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And I also think that something that the pandemic has brought forward is the number of people who have some kind of card for assistance in purchasing food. Also, there is no predictability on that, none. Mm. So, you know, when you're processing someone's order at a register, you are seeing a lot about somebody in addition to the food they like to eat. You know, you're gaining in those moments the opportunity for exchange and for humor and for kindness. And also, you know, as I spoke of earlier, those opportunities to practice patience because someone doesn't see who I am. And that person who doesn't see who I am can be anybody. Mm. It underscores what might be a difference between invisibility and anonymity. A lot of digital jobs these days, back-end developers, for example, maybe their contributions to digital products are not named. And for some personality types, that anonymity might be great. But though we may fantasize being like Nightcrawler from the X-Men and doing crazy (laughs) things while invisible, I think invisibility is only desirable if it could be selectively turned on for certain activities and moments. But otherwise, it doesn't feel good to be unseen, to be ignored. Mm -hmm. So Marianne, I'm mindful of your time. We'll wrap up shortly, but I did want to give listeners a taste of your wonderful writing. I'm going to read a quote from a recent piece you wrote in The Globe, and I'm hoping we could maybe dig into it uh, a bit more in our conversation. So 
You write, when life revolves around the cash register, all bets are off. True, we are meant to offer pleasantries or a wee bit of conversation with customers. We do fleeting moments. We simulate connection. This transactional work is not insignificant. It puts food on the table. Grocery stores, like other retailers, have goods and services that are exchanged for money. Obvious. Perhaps what is less palpable is the structure of our work. Grocery workers are meant to be busy, to be doing something all the time. Our availability creates work schedules. Sales determine how many staff work a shift. Often we are all moving parts in a building, though not necessarily at the same time. In passing, we speak shorthand, and while we may stand near each other at registers, our conversation is directed at customers, not each other. So a lot of that I think we already sort of double-clicked on, but maybe one area that we can explore a bit more is structure. The idea that you're on the one hand sort of cogs in the in the machine, this great big machine that though you may be able to control your hours to a degree, there are a lot of other demands of the job that are simply expected. And if you can't do it, then someone else will be found to do it. And when there is a kind of depersonalization, um, which of course was a key Marxist concept, alienation, as he often called it, this is we don't feel good, to put it very simply. We don't feel good when this is happening. And experiences are are always embodied. We are there. There are other people. And I do think there is, if we're mindful enough, for instance, as a customer, you do have the, the autonomy to look up from your phone and make generous eye contact, uh, a small generosity, but a generosity nonetheless. And make some amount of, of effort to connect, even in a fleeting small way. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps the latter interactions are housed within the former kind of economic system. There is always a, a sort of tension between the two. So I'm wondering if you could comment more on how the structure of your work, the arrangement of it, at times may may contribute to pleasant social interactions, but at other times really does make you feel more more like a cog in the machine. I think um, that because of the fever pitch of what is often happening in a store, and particularly grocery stores, it's endless in that it's moment after moment of after moment someone needs something from you and so yes certainly part of our charge is to be pleasant to be there for the customer to make it as positive and good an experience as possible even in those short instances what do you figure on average you know if it's a big grocery shop Maybe somebody's been in the store maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. If somebody's just running in for something, it's minutes. And maybe between people coming in for stuff and doing a little bit of looking, maybe they're in there a half hour. And those are probably all inflated times. But because it is part of your quote unquote job, I think it is about trying to make it not only good for the customer, but good for you that you've had some interaction with people that you're helping somebody in some way. I think it's as much that it would be great for customers to view the people working in stores as helpful to them. 
I think it's also part of what we as the workers need to do, which is to realize I'm helping this person and not in a like, I'm helping this person. Why are they being that? You know, not mm-hmm. in that kind of way, but like to help ourselves to remind ourselves of the value of what we're doing, you know, to help another person who needs something or who's asking a question and you can find an answer to it matters. We are not solving the Middle East peace crisis or (laughs) coming up with another vaccine. But that doesn't mean that in that moment for something that matters to somebody and my job is to be in service to that person in the best sense of the word, that it does matter. You know, because maybe somebody's having a special dinner. Maybe somebody's having company for the first time since the pandemic. Maybe somebody's having an anniversary or a job promotion. Maybe somebody is just hankering for a particular food and they came in looking for it. And if they don't find it, they're asking you, do you happen to have any? Do you know when it will be back? Do you know what I mean? All of this stuff is good for both us and for the customer. In terms of the structure with my coworkers, what's hard is I have been blessed in other lifetimes of careers, journalism, teaching, the law firm where I was an editor. I have always been blessed to make some good relationships, friendships with people. And they carried outside of our offices or classrooms. And so you get to know some people in a far more textured and nuanced way. And you feel that connection. And that's part of what helps you go to that job. All of that matters. It's not the same setup in the store, which is not to say that there aren't people who have nice friendships or nicer, deeper acquaintances, if you will. But like Mm -hmm. at the end of a late shift, people just want to go home and maybe they'll talk for a few minutes in the parking lot. But it's it's not the same or I should say it's not the same for me. I'm not talking with these folks on the telephone. I'm not having them come to my home, you know. Uh, right. And I think for a lot of us, we see each other. We have a great exchange. Maybe we learn bits of what's happening in somebody's life, little bits in a moment. But that's kind of where it begins and ends. And so I learned to make peace with that, that when I'm there, I'm there and I'm giving 150 percent and I will do anything I can to help my coworkers. But when I'm not there, I'm not there. And yeah. maybe for a lot of people who work in a situation and certainly, you know, technology impacted this decades ago where they have to be available all the time. I do not have to be available all the time. Right. Well, Marianne, I'm so grateful for your energy and your voice and your spirit. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share about anything we touched on or anything we didn't touch on before we end the call? Mostly, I just hope that we all come to appreciate each other 
regardless of whatever work we do, and to know that there's so much that each of us, you know, whether we work at home raising a family, whether we work in an office, whether we work in a large international setting, whether we work in a retail store, you know, we carry so much in our cells. We do absorb each other. So if we can just remember that at the end of the day, we all put our pants on one leg at a time (laughs) and we all enjoy a good meal and a good laugh. I hope that in some way, in the end, I hope my work can give voice to people who maybe don't have the situation that provides an opportunity for them to have voice. Um, Mm -hmm. And as for this, I I thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation and I very much appreciate uh, your interest. So thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. Thanks, Marianne. And you're off to work shortly, correct? I'm off to to work shortly. Yep, I am going to pack some, going to pack some (laughs) dinner. some dinner food. (laughs) Well, have a good shift. And uh, thanks again, Marianne. This was great. And I hope uh, to connect with you again in the future. Thank you. I look forward to it. Be well. Stay safe. huh? You too, Marianne. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.